Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Bait, the independent republic of Mike Graham. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, a brand new year. It's 2023. And look how much has changed already. Uh, There isn't a rail strike anymore. Oh, no, no, there is a run of rail strike. There is a rail strike going on. The NHS has been solved and sorted out. Uh, Well, not so much, actually. The NHS is still in a crisis. Uh, We've also got, of course, a whole bunch of strikes coming down the pike. Uh, We've got the teachers threatening to go on strike. We've got uh, the people who run the borders threatening to go on strike again. Border force, we're going to talk about that coming up in this hour. We're going to talk uh, to Baroness Claire Fox, first up, director uh, of the Academy of Ideas, of course, because uh, she sits in the House of Lords. I'm not going to say somewhat reluctantly, because I think what she does in the House of Lords is worth an awful lot uh, of our time and money. However, uh, we will be talking about the death of travel in this country because it looks as though the rail strikes are starting to have such an effect uh, that ministers are beginning to say it may well be that people will just abandon trains altogether. I drove in this morning, uh, as I often do, and there were hardly any cars on the road because lots of people have just decided not to bother. Lots of people have just decided not to come to work. There are uh, cities and towns up and down the country which are deserted this morning, ladies and gentlemen, simply and purely because nobody is going to work in an office anymore. Because what these rail strikes are doing, contrary to whatever Mick Lynch from the RMT seems to think, uh, is it's killing the industry, it's killing the railways, it's killing the economy, and it's killing all public sympathy for the rail unions. Because despite what Mick Lynch has just said on the news, that what the public wants is affordable, safe rail travel uh, that they can use uh, at any particular time. No, what they want is for you to stop going on strike so that they can actually get a train to work. There's an awful lot of people who can't work from home, are unable to work and make any money. And my son is amongst them. And I think it's pretty disgraceful behaviour from a guy who doesn't want to give up ridiculous Spanish practices to hold the entire nation to ransom. And that's my rant for the day. 0344 499 1000. We'll be talking about Leo Varadka, uh, the former uh, Irish uh, Premier Taoiseach, who's now saying uh, that there were mistakes made on both sides of the Brexit debate. Well, thanks for telling us. And also, of course... Forget about the NHS crisis. How about these maniacs who have come back onto the scene to tell us to wear masks and to stay home if we're sick? Have they not learned from anything of the past two years that happened? It is 2023 now. Let us move on. It all kicked off in 2020. People are walking around wearing masks again. No, thank you. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about the walrus up in the northeast as well. Uh, interesting times. Also, uh, I may give a little nod. Uh, to the spare and the spare, because uh, Prince Harry, of course, 
having invaded his own privacy with his Netflix documentary, is now giving loads of interviews around the sale of his book, for which he received about 20 million quid. He just won't stop whining, will he? I wish he would. This is Talk TV. Let's get it on. It does feel very good to be back at the helm here at Talk TV because uh, it's always a good way to start the year, I find. Uh, thanks to Kevin O'Sullivan, who was in uh, this particular seat for me yesterday. He had a very lively show. Uh, we're going to pick up from what he did uh, and talk some more about the things that we are about to be presented with over the course of the next few weeks, because we have, of course, still got Rishi Sunak. He's still in charge. Uh, he gave what I can only describe as a rather kind of uh, uninspiring message for the new year uh, over the weekend, in which he said that he wanted to give people hope. Well, really? Hope about what? Exactly. I had an email this morning from my power company telling me that they'd deposited 70 quid or whatever it is into my electricity bill so that I'd be able to afford to pay it. They're still doing that. They're still giving our money away. I really wish they wouldn't. I really wish they'd find a better way of dealing with things. I really wish they'd stop putting windfall taxes on companies and then giving the money back to us to give it back to them. It doesn't seem to make any sense to me. But let's talk uh, to Claire Fox, Director of the Academy of Ideas, uh, member, of course, of the House of Lords. Claire, very good morning to you. Happy New Year. And the same to you, Mike. Welcome back. Yes, thank you very much indeed. I mean, I did actually pop back in at the end of last week, but nobody seems to have noticed. They've all gone, oh, it's great to have you back. So I don't know where they were last week. But anyway, there we are. Um, I'm interested in what we're being told this morning, uh, that millions may shun the train service forever. Because in my mind, and you tell me if I'm wrong about this, I've always seen you as a kind of um, um, a sort of fighter for for the rights of trade unions and a fighter for uh, the, the things that, that, that working people should be able to do and what they shouldn't be able to do. But it seems to me that this RMT strike is now getting way out of control. So I think we have to untangle a few things. You're right that, you know, one of the things that I'm very passionate about is at the very least, and this is the bottom line, defending the right strike. Yeah. It really irritates me when I hear the government saying oh, we're going to make it even harder to pull a strike when they've actually made it almost impossible to get votes for strikes. And the fact that so many votes are going through indicates that people aren't happy. Yeah. But just on the rail strike in particular, um, I, 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 I concede this. I, I think that people are not so much concerned about the demand for wages, but I think probably on working practice practices yeah. the RMT have not won the argument so um, compellingly but I find it irritating that Mark Harper says that the reason and not just Mark Harper the minister but various uh, uh, um, members of government are saying that people will stop using the rail network because of the strikes because I think that you know that I use the railways a lot to get down to London mm. and I can tell you that it hasn't taken strikes to disrupt the service I mean ever since lockdown you know, which is long over, right? You can't get a train. Yeah. And Avanti West just collapsed. Yes. And this is yes. on days, nothing to do with strikes. Forget the RMT at this point. There's a problem with the service. It's a bit like the health service at the moment. The health service is not so much disrupted by nurses going on strike, but on the fact that the service as such is not working, it's not fit for purpose. And my concern is, I do share this point. I know more and more people who are saying, "I'm going to get the, you know, I'm going to get the bus." Mm. Uh, people are using it as a as a kind of um, work from home, but I just don't want. I think it would be wrong to not recognise that what happened here was that the locking down of society for so long 
allowed a lot of services to just shut up shop. Mm. They've never really returned properly. Right. But what we're told, of course, Claire, is that many of the train services during lockdown were still running. Well, this is what the unions tell us. They say, oh, no, we weren't on furlough. We were running trains. And many, many trains were running completely empty. Nobody really knows why. But one of the reasons why the train services have become so unreliable is, I'm told as well, due to a shortage of staff. People that do travel by train say, well, we turn up and they've cancelled the train. And they say, why have you cancelled it? They go, well, we haven't got a driver or we haven't got the staff or, you know, there's an overtime ban. So it's not entirely outside of the interests or the influence of the RMT. It's entirely due to the fact that they're not they're not supplying enough staff. Now, they'll probably say, well, that's because they haven't got enough staff. But if they're on an overtime ban, then that's not strictly true either. Well, in terms of the in terms of the um, the debate that's been going on in the House of Lords, just to, to use that as an illustration, the Transport Minister there constantly says, "Don't worry, we're on this." Uh, Avanti West is one of the worst uh, culprits, and uh, it's to kind of get. I mean, you know, we talk about levelling up and you know, red walls. I mean, you can't get to London or to the northwest. Avanti mm. West isn't working, and. They actually, the, the, the ministers in that instance don't blame the strikers because they'll say there's been an investigation into what's gone wrong with that service for some time. And it is true that the staff shortages, but they are constantly being told, if you don't sort this out, this is the, the, the management, uh, we're going to stop, you know, you having um, this rep, um, where you're, you're given the, the monopoly on that uh, travel area. But Avanti West keep breaking the deadline, and they keep telling us this, and saying, oh, well, we're going to get onto it. Uh, the reason I'm talking about the lockdown, Mike, and I completely agree with you, by the way, that it was almost hilarious how many trains actually ran during lockdown when no one was using them. Mm. But they, they introduced a new timetable. They basically said skeleton timetable. And all I'm saying is they've never gone back. Mm. They've never even tried to go back. There's just an acceptance now. I mean, I know that if I'm going to catch a train at 10, 10 o'clock, say, I have to basically know that I maybe have to wait till 11 or 12. It's almost like some kind of Soviet nightmare, yeah. you know, old days where you kind of, or, you know, that you'd kind of turn up and you kind of, oh, God, do you think I might ever get a train? And the reason I'm stressing that is it's not to just let RMT off the hook. Um, I, I, I think that the, the, the RMT do need to consider... Uh, now, uh, the way that the public are perceiving these strikes, but I'm genuinely saying that the service of running trains is not up to scratch. And it's not just the RMT. When they say they want uh, a decent service, um, that's better than the people who are running the service who are not providing minimum service requirements on non-strike days. Mm. And the problem, I think, for an awful lot of people, though, Claire, is that they can't turn up and hope for the best because, for example, if you're going into, and I know friends of mine who run, you know, various, you know, sort of nighttime economy type businesses have been really badly hurt by this over the, over the Christmas period because if you don't know you're going to get a train home, you're not going to be able to go in uh, and, and party or go to a club or go to a pub and meet your friends because there's no sure way of getting home and people can't afford taxis. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just, I completely agree with you. I mean, it drives me mad. And, and the, the, all I'm saying is, just before lockdown, I'm just trying to point out that something has gone wrong in the last few years. Mm. Because actually, there was regular services to the Northwest that you could more or less rely on. I'm not saying it was perfect. Mm. But somehow, the, 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 the seizing up of the economy and society during lockdown, we just shouldn't forget that. You know, like, 
it's easy for the government to say, oh, it's not that. Nothing to do with the fact we closed down the economy and told everyone to stay at home and completely mm. changed everything. It's all the strikers' fault. I think there's a little bit of divide and rule there. I want to hold to account the fact that the people who ran society closed it down. They got out the habit almost of running a service mm. effectively. And we therefore need to hold them to account on that score. Now, the RMT strike is one of many strikes. And my point is quite straightforwardly that there should be more solidarity with people who are saying enough is enough. Because I think we all feel that Britain is broken. Mm. I mean, that's a constant refrain that you hear. And I think that people standing up for themselves or for their fellow uh, workers, I have some respect for. I don't want to just tell them to passively accept what's been thrown at them because I won't passively accept what's been thrown at me as a service user. No, no of course. And, and I think that's absolutely right. But I think also there's not enough truth being told. You know, it's being painted as this fight between, you know, the working man uh, and woman and this awful, horrible Tory government who wants to privatise everything. And it's not really as simple as that. And partly the media has a, a part to play in that as well. And we should be better at actually explaining what it is that, that Mick Lynch wants. But of course, he doesn't really want to tell you about the practices that he wants to give up because they're so arcane, people will just fall about laughing. But stay where you are, Claire, because we'll come back to this. We've got to take a little break. Uh, we're with Claire Fox, Baroness Fox, indeed, uh, Director of the Academy of Ideas. We're talking about where the trains are indeed uh, dying in this country and there just won't be any in about five years' time because they're so useless that nobody can afford to take them anymore. We're going to talk a bit about the European Union. We'll talk a bit as well about Extinction Rebellion. This is Talk TV. Uh, this is Mike Graham and we are back after this. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic and Mike Graham. We're talking to Baroness Fox, uh, Director of the Academy of Ideas. Let's just finish up, Claire, with the, uh, uh, with the final sort of suggestion uh, that maybe if they broadened the argument about what it is that they really want uh, the unions to stop doing, the government might have a chance of, of actually gaining even more of a foothold with the public. So I don't think the public are supporting the government in this either. I wonder if the public are just fed up with all of it and just not using trains. Yeah, I mean, I think that the government have relied on the Tory government, certainly when I've heard them arguing, they're trying to kind of recreate the 1970s rhetoric, you yeah. know, evil unions, uh, you know, we've got to stop them. People are just a bit like, oh, come on, we've only got a lot of trust in you, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and you've also got to recognise that we're talking about a crisis of travel, not being able to get the train. A lot of the time, there's an attack on your ability to drive, mm. right? And I don't just mean Sadiq Khan's ULES policies, I mean, generally, there's a, why don't you drive less? Mm. Why aren't you more responsible? This government itself has been partly involved in ensuring that going into work is no longer a requirement for a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a lot going on here. I just don't think that the rhetoric of the government just going evil strikers, they're all Marxist, lefty, mm. lunatic, bringing the country down, is as convincing as it might have been in the 70s. <laughs> We've got a, a, a government that people have got very little faith in and an opposition that, you know, basically is only gaining support by default and 
all of them are basically attacking various forms of private transport that we might use as an alternative to yeah. the trains. I mean, you're not allowed to drive your car without being treated like a war criminal. No, exactly right. I mean, I did have a wry smile on my face as I watched the uh, fireworks display at midnight on uh, Saturday night. And when I thought to myself, hang on a minute, this doesn't look as if it's that good for the clean air policy of Sadiq Khan. And also, since we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis, is it really a good idea to be that extravagant with public money? And I know people will say, oh, well, they got some of it back because they charged people for tickets. But really, I mean, it's a bit like let them eat cake, isn't it, that? Well, I'd rather like the celebration. I could have just done without the lecture. Um, oh, well, I, don't I, even I, get me started on the, on no, the PC the brigade. But the reason I mentioned it on that is we weren't even allowed to just have a good time, right? I mean, if you're going to have a fireworks display and say we're going to celebrate the new year, yeah, tone down the, and by the way, and by the way, and by the way, lecture right. goes alongside it. So I'm afraid that I'm, 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 I'm not as much of a killjoy on the spend the money to celebrate, but I just don't want to have to endure a kind of propaganda yeah. No, listen, I'm, I'm very, as, as you know very well, um, Claire, I'm very far from being a killjoy, but what I hate is hypocrisy and what I hate yeah. is all these politicians telling us how hard it's going to be and how tough it is and how dreadful it's all going to be and we're all going to have to tighten our belts. And then they spend about eight million quid on a fireworks display and you just kind of go, really? Yeah, I, mean, I, think, that, I think the difficulty we've got is that um, we've, we all know we've got a tough year ahead, don't we? I mean, nobody knows what it's going to entail. I, I think that there's an anxiety about, you know, yeah. whether it's bills. I mean, international relations not exactly looking great. You know, war in the heart. You're, I mean, there's enough things to worry about. And I, and I suppose I don't mind the notion of, of, of celebrating or at least attempting to have an optimistic uh, uh, look forward. But the point that you made about Rishi Sunak's weekend, you know, in your opening monologue, you made the point that he kind of gave a message where he said, let's have hope. Yeah. It's like, we're not idiots, right? And right. I, I don't want us to succumb to a kind of despondency. In, in some ways, that's one of the reasons I keep going on about the strikers, because I actually, I don't want people to kind of go into the slough of despond and mm. just think, this is it, what can we do? There's no point. I want people to actually think, right, what kind of society do we want? We've got to start demanding it. We can't just let the politicians, and some people will say the unions or anyone else, just tell us, what we want we've got to make decisions ourselves mm. because one of the things at the moment is you're kind of just sitting there watching and waiting and there's nothing more demoralizing than feeling you've got no yes. control over what's happening but i think that's why more and more people are making their own decisions and deciding for themselves precisely how to get to work where to work you know when to work and i think they're becoming more and more like you and i which is less reliant on people to tell us what to do and just more self-reliant and you know live your life the way you want as long as you're not doing any harm to anybody else they can get lost yeah i mean i do i genuinely think that i i, I know that we're not necessarily focusing on this now and you will later but you know when some people sort of say oh by the way we think you should wear masks mm. I mean, I, I think good luck trying to impose that on anyone, right? Yeah. I just know that majority of people would just say, do me a favour, right? Yeah. We're not doing that anymore. I think that the, there's been a huge amount of uh, a collapse in our belief in what we're being told by mm. officials. I mean, I, I can't get over the fact that the health service crisis that we're going through at the moment, and there's no doubt about it, uh, that there's real problems in the hospitals. Yeah. More and more people are thinking to themselves, well, actually, yeah, you've told us for years that we're all meant to kind of sing a happy, uh, the NHS is the most wonderful health service in the year, in the world. 
And we can now see the serious problems with it. And people start asking questions. Yeah. And they do recognise that the health service, we were told we had to stop the whole of society to protect the health service. And now what's happened is that we know that so many people are dying because the health service, during the time of COVID, didn't look at anything but COVID. Mm. We now know that there's a problem of um, emergency uh, uh, A&E at the moment, people flooding in with uh, mass, with uh, flu and everything. And what do they say? That our problem is that we should wear masks yeah. and we should go out when we're ill. You think, no, we're a society in which we don't want people to be hypochondriacs who never leave the house if no. they've got a cough or a cold. We need to function properly. Yeah. And we're not going to be told exactly as you say what to do without at least questioning it. And I hope there's a lot more open debate and questioning about these uh, sacred cows. Well, yeah, absolutely right. Because one of the things that they tried to do during COVID was to shut all debate down to try and actually make sure you didn't uh, have any dissension, that you didn't have a disagreement with government policy. And uh, as we're looking at this now written up there, COVID-19 guidance. Well, here's my COVID-19 guidance. Stick it up uh, where the sun don't shine. Thanks very much indeed. But let's talk about Leo Varadkar because uh, unbeknownst yeah. to me, he snuck back in as the Irish Prime Minister. Who knew that would ever happen, right? Uh, he's a sort of the bad penny that won't go away. But he's now saying that, oh, they may have made some mistakes from the European Union side. First time I think that's ever been said, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what, what he's actually saying is he's uh, considered, he's the leader of Fine Gael, and there was some arrangement made in the Irish government where half the time would be led by the leader of Fianna Foil, and now Fine Gael would have a go. It's a very odd democratic settlement. Mm. Anyway, he's back. And he was associated very much with being completely hostile to Brexit yeah. and being a massive fuss about the Northern Irish border and consequently is not trusted by anyone who is kind of a Leave voter um, as somebody that you could say could resolve the problems of the border now. Mm. And what he's saying is, oh, look, I might have been a bit hard in the past. Maybe the EU were a bit inflexible when it came to the protocol and wouldn't be negotiating He's now saying there's got to be more talks. The danger with this is, this is about uh, Radka and the EU defending the Northern Irish Protocol. And many of us believe that you have to get rid of that Northern Irish Protocol because it's actually ensuring that the uh, uh, six counties in Northern Ireland are in the EU, effectively, yeah. right? And that is a very dangerous situation to be in because it means the EU have some jurisdiction jurisdiction over uh, over the UK. So there's a massive battle going on and I'm afraid that although I want to be able to slag off Leo Varadkar, I'm more concerned about the fact that the Conservative government seem to be, let's say, uh, rather ambivalent about whether they're going to see their own bill, which is the, the, the um, Northern Irish Protocol bill, seems to have been put on ice. Mm. So it doesn't really want to fight. And Jeremy Hunt is definitely not keen on this. And so a lot of people are very anxious that sovereignty, which was one of the key parts of, of, of the leaving of the European Union, is being compromised by a government that just won't hold the line on it. You just don't want to talk. And I mean, people are fed up. And I even leave voters are a bit like, oh, mm. God, can we just not go on about Brexit all the time? And that's a fair point. But it's very important that we don't, allow that kind of like war weariness almost of being constantly told that everything's Brexit's fault. I mean, I've been blaming the lockdown. Lots of people will be saying, oh, the strikes, everything that's broken in Britain is Brexit's fault. You know, that's a particular narrative. I reject that, of yeah. course. Well, there is a problem if we don't 
resolve the Northern Irish issue in terms of the EU's jurisdiction over a part of the United Kingdom. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right. We've got to run. Baroness Claire Fox, brilliant as ever. Thank you very much indeed, Director of the Academy of Ideas. Let's have some news headlines. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We've got plenty to do. It's the first show back, of course, for 2023. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Now we don't write checks anymore. You don't have to worry so much about getting the year wrong. You used to do it all the time. The first week, you'd be writing checks and making them out to the, the person in the wrong year. Now we don't have to worry about that because everything automatically updates, doesn't it? And I haven't even caught myself. I haven't found myself saying 2022 at all. 2023 sort of rolls off the tongue, it seems to me. So welcome to a brand new year. Welcome to a brand new show. Welcome to Talk TV. If you haven't been here before, uh, we'd love to have you for the whole year. Uh, we've got all sorts of plans coming up. Uh, I'll be appearing later on tonight uh, on the Jeremy Carl live show at 7 o'clock. We'll be talking to Jeremy later on, of course, throughout the course of the day, uh, because here he is uh, back from uh, the Christmas and New Year break. Here you are back from the Christmas and New Year break. And guess what else is back from the Christmas and New Year break? Yes, that's right. It's the COVID maniacs. They're coming for us. They're saying uh, that there's another COVID outbreak coming from China. Uh, it's a bit like Omicron, uh, which wasn't very bad at all. But they want you to wear a mask. They want you to stay home if there's anything wrong with you. And they want you to basically go back to where you were. So it's back to the future with the NHS, back to the future with the COVID maniacs. And all of those people like me who said a first time around, we think most of this is actually unnecessary. I'm going to have to say it all over again. And I'm delighted to say that no greater champion of all of that freedom is Laura Dodsworth, back with us, author and journalist. Happy New Year to you, Laura. Welcome back. Happy New Year to you too. Is it Happy New Year or is it Happy Groundhog Day, Mike? <laughs> well, it's always, it's, 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 always, um, it's always Happy New Year for me. But I mean, I must admit, I didn't expect to have to be doing this all over again, uh, going through this ridiculous charade of telling people that, yeah, but remember last time when you told everybody to wear masks, remember how many people got COVID even though they were wearing masks because the mask didn't work? I mean, the only difference, I guess, this time around is we might not be, you know, sanctioned by the government for actually saying it. Uh, yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully things don't get so bad. Do you know, Groundhog Day is one of my favourite films and we were... We were questioning whether we should watch it over this Christmas period at home. Yeah. But it just feels like we're living it. We li we really are living Groundhog Day yeah. and I can't watch it again. It's as though we have learnt nothing. I know. I couldn't believe it when I saw in the news this week that the UK Health and Security Agency chiefs are calling for a return to masks. Now, they're not calling for a universal return to masks, but watch this space mm. because what we saw all through the pandemic management were a lot of behavioural science techniques and nudging, including foot in the door. So they make a gentle suggestion, get used to that, and then and then more suggestions follow because it's very difficult to get people to agree to the radical solution at the beginning. So what they're saying now with regards to masks, if you are unwell, you should wear a mask when you go out. I mean, it sounds so sensible, and yet there is still no research that masks stop COVID. So it's not sensible. And they're also saying if you're unwell then you shouldn't go out and visit um sick people for instance right. you know um vulnerable relatives but we all know this this is basic common sense i had a cough last autumn and i didn't go and visit my mum who has lung conditions i don't really need to be told this 
by health chiefs. But it's it's very frustrating to see the, the return to these measures. Um, you know, the, the zero COVID zealots, the zero COVID cultists, they're always waiting in the wings. And I fear that when the um, health chiefs put these, these measures forward, what it does is create a general air of uncertainty. And then you get all the COVID nutters swooping in, asking for more, more, more restrictions. Yeah. One thing we should know by now is politicians can't control viruses. They're still pretending they can because it would be enormously embarrassing to admit that the greatest damage we've inflicted on ourselves as a nation, the lockdowns, was pointless. Yes. I mean, they were kind of getting towards that kind of state of mind, though, weren't they? Towards the end of the year, when the, the COVID inquiry had started, people were mm. starting to, to make noises, even witty, uh, started to admit that there were excess deaths as a result of lockdown. You know, but it's almost as though the Christmas has come a bit early and a bit late for them because they can now go, oh, yeah, but don't worry, because there's more COVID mm. coming from China. And the Americans have suddenly decided to start testing Chinese arrivals when they come mm. into the country at airports. And then suddenly Rishi Sunak was asking whether he should be doing that. And, you know, the testing doesn't work either, you know, because you can test yeah. somebody now and they can be fine um, and they can then not actually be fine tomorrow. But you tested them and said they were fine. So, you know, the whole thing is a charade, charade isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think really the problem is that we're being ruled by media and opinion polls. Now, to start with, the view was that we wouldn't test people coming in from China. And that makes sense. COVID is now endemic okay everyone's had it or everyone's been vaccinated we're yeah. supposed to be at this wonderful herd immunity stage where everyone's vaccinated and if the vaccine works and we're told it does then what's the stress yeah. we've also had it it's all around the world now we saw that there were countries which restricted entrance really really hard like new zealand we cannot turn ourselves into a hermit kingdom it's impossible for this country mm. in which case testing travelers offers very little benefit. World Health Organization documents have always said it offers very little benefit. And it's extremely early to contain a disease. We're long past that. So what happened was our government performed another U-turn. Was, it was very unpopular, the idea of not testing China. And I think what that comes from, really, is that we know we can't trust what China says about the virus because it proved that at the beginning of the pandemic, the World Health Organization didn't have a handle on what was going on. Do you remember when we were told it was from a wet market, mm. which looks almost certainly likely to be a fabrication right. you know the lab is very strongly the wuhan lab is very strongly indicated to be involved in the release of covid one way or another you know it's, the evidence is all still you know up in the air but what we do know is that it doesn't work in fact um david patton an economist reported in unheard just this week that there is um very strong research um that now shows that travel restrictions make very little difference mm. on mortality. So um, interventions in 169 countries were examined and it was found that tra travel restrictions made very little difference. So introducing them now is a SOP. It's a SOP right. the media calling for it. And it's a SOP to public opinion who want to see some punishment meted out in one direction or another yeah. and don't trust China. No, but, you know, people are going to be travelling all around the world. You might, you might test people coming in for China, but it's not going to stop new variants spreading. It's pointless. Well, also, the Omicron variant, which was the responsible variant for shutting down Christmas last year, or I should say mm. 2021, I suppose, rather than 2022, 
uh, was proven to be pretty harmless, actually. And it didn't really do very much damage to any country in the world. This new one is meant to be a variant of that. So we can take it presumably as read that that won't be terribly bad either. But almost everything that they said at various points from 2020 to 2022 changed anyway. Mm. I remember asking the question at the beginning of the whole lockdown in 2020 to scientists and to, to professors, uh, why we're still allowing the airports to, to, to allow people to fly in and out of the country. And they said, well, the COVID's already here, so there's no point in stopping people coming in. And then suddenly it became, oh, we better stop some people coming in. But then they didn't do it anyway. Absolutely. This is politics by opinion, poll. It's it's depressing that we've learned nothing by now. And, you know, you, you mentioned the um, NHS being on the brink of disaster again. This is another thing that we're hearing about right now. I mean, quite astonishingly, in the last week, the chief medical officer of Wales has basically told people not to do anything, not to take any risks because they might make a, a further strain on the NHS. You know, they we're told that the NHS is crumbling every single winter. Yes. It's another Groundhog Day moment. Yeah. But what you can see happening here is a form of backwards calculation. So basically they go, oh, crikey, you know, we've got no beds, we're short-staffed, we're under loads of strain, can't do anything about flu, can't do anything about COVID, no. can't do anything about this, this and this. Right, what can we do something about? Oh, I know, we get sprained ankles in January because... Mm. People are running. Let's tell people not to run. And I kid you not, this was actual advice from the Chief Medical Officer of Wales. He told people not to go for long runs. Now, first of all, um, I really... Sorry for laughing. It's just that ridiculous, isn't it? It is It is ridiculous. It's a complete inversion of what you should be expecting to hear from a health authority. Now, let's not mince our words. We are a fat and unhealthy nation. I'm sorry, but it's true. 28% of British adults are obese and over a third are overweight. We're pretty fat. Mm. One, of the, one of the least bad things you could be doing this January is to start running because obesity is linked to so many other conditions. Now, sure, you don't want to get off your couch and go straight into a marathon. But most people don't do that anyway. What he's basically telling people is don't get sick because we're really under pressure. Yeah. Oh, don't start exercising. You know, stay, stay on your sofa, stay mm. indoors. Oh, and if you leave the house, wear a mask. Yeah. Well, this is this is upside down thinking. We're an unhealthy nation and the best resolution you could have right now is to look after your health because frankly, you can't always rely upon the National Health Service to do it for you. The nanny state micromanagement has to stop mm. it's not just the nhs you know aside from this being backwards health advice i think it's more broadly indicative of a real leaning towards control you know we have energy companies telling us not to use energy yeah. we have water boards telling us not to use water we have travel companies telling us not to travel <laughs> and now we have the nhs telling us not to exercise it's like actually it's, it's like a restaurant inviting you in for a meal and then asking you not to order anything you know, because it well, would be simpler if we didn't. Yeah. To, it can be simpler if we didn't have to cook anything, because obviously that will cost us more money. You know, but it's the same old story, isn't it? The problem with the NHS is that it doesn't work. It doesn't work to such an extent that when people go on strike inside of it, it doesn't actually get any worse because it's just as bad as it was when there wasn't a strike. And then during the time when the ambulance drivers went on strike, if you remember, we were told not to do anything. You know, don't even not, not only don't go for a run, but don't actually do anything that might cause you to need an ambulance. Well, sorry, yeah. you know, reason accidents happen is because they're accidents. Absolutely. And it's also the tail wagging the dog. 
As a citizen of this great country, I am fed up with authorities telling me not to use energy, water, not to exercise, not to get sick, not to travel. This isn't how I want to live my life. No. And although, you know, we can pick holes in the specific advice the NHS is giving, I think there is there is a much bigger and broader concern here. We are edging more and more and more in towards command and control. Everything is always about control, controlling your thinking, controlling your behaviour, controlling how we live. We're not reaching for prosperity and abundance and freedom which is what we should be reaching for. We've got it all wrong at the moment. If you remember last year, President Emmanuel Macron in France mm. told the French people that the age of abundance is over. I can't think of a more measly-mouthed, miserly, awful mm. way for a leader to speak to his country. And I see. I think that we see that kind of attitude coming through in all of our organisations. We really have to resist because you know what? It's only a few steps away from being the sort of... Uh, you know, socialist country where people are queuing outside bakeries for their mm. bread yeah. and, you know, everything they want to eat is taxed to the hilt. I mean, another example of this kind of command control attitude is the soft drink levy. Mm. So easy for people to think this makes sense. It was introduced in 2018, reduce the amount of sugar in soft drinks because kids are really fat. Sounds really sensible. What's happened to obesity? Nothing. No. Great revenue generator. Fantastic for the technocrats who love to think they can control fat, stupid people by making soft drinks healthier or more expensive or whatever. But what's it done to obesity? Right. What's the bottom line? Nothing. Exactly you need right. to stop controlling people and instead create an environment where people can be healthy and can have freedom and agency to look after themselves. Yeah, they can actually make their own decisions. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Laura, stay where you are. We've got plenty to talk about because I want to talk about food banks, I want to talk about the narrative, I want to talk about Sadiq Khan, the fireworks, all of that, coming next right here on Talk TV. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We talked to Laura Dodsworth, author and journalist, of course. Laura, um, let's talk a bit about uh, some of the other kind of narratives that are out there. Um, many of them involve the NHS. Many of them involve the whole, you know, striking scenario as well. I'm getting slightly troubled by the fact that so many people are now claiming uh, that they need to use food banks because, as people keep pointing out to me, what did people do in the 70s? What did people do uh, in times gone by before somebody invented a food bank uh, when they were supposedly hungry? Because, like you say, uh, it's a rather obese nation we've got here. I don't look uh, when I look it out into the streets. I don't see too many people starving. Mm, there's, a bit, there's, there's quite a lot going on there. I mean, I don't know what people did before food banks either, but it's. I think there's a danger in saying that people are obese, obese and therefore there's no issue with access to good quality food because those are different things. You know, obesity has lots of different causes, and what. Many of them are environmental. You know, yeah, but people who food. are starving in other parts of the world are not usually obese, are they? No, but we do we do have access to really cheap, poor quality food. There's a lot of processed food, a lot of cheap, refined carbohydrates. These foods are fattening and they're low in nutrition. And these, these staple foods and processed foods, inflation actually um, has hit them higher than other products. And if you are a low-income household the increase in the price of staple foods hits you harder than a high-income household. Poorer households effectively experience a higher rate of inflation. Staple food prices have gone up um, nearly 17% to November 2022. So, I mean, I think we can all feel that difference in our food bills. I can. Mm. It's, change it's changing how I shop. It's changing the food I buy. Um, the way I think of it, though, is I try and buy less of the processed food. The kids are complaining there's no Jaffa cakes in the house, you know. Um, 
change the off-brand labels and buy more real food and say, sorry, kids, have a piece of toast yeah. and peanut butter or wait till dinner. Um, but I, I don't really know what people did do before food banks. Food banks are invention of the um, the 60s, aren't they? But they've always been they've always been charities providing assistance to people in need. I think there's just so many bigger, wider problems at the moment. You know, we're a very benefit dependent culture as well. Exactly. But the point that, 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 that I'm trying to make, I suppose, is that we're being we're being told to believe that if you are making as much as £32,000 a year working in the public sector, that you might be struggling to put food on the table. I find it quite objectionable that people are making those arguments in public and nobody's really challenging them. Because when they do, uh, they get sort of demonised as being some evil Tory. Well, you don't know what it's like because 32000 isn't very much money. You know, I heard um, a representative of, of the Labour Party talking over the weekend about this and they were absolutely convinced that more and more hospitals were setting up food banks because the nurses that worked there couldn't afford to eat. I just don't believe it. Yeah, I don't think that's true. But I think that we're very out of touch with how to eat sensibly and normally. You know, um, people buy a lot of takeaways um, and processed fast food, which isn't really nutritionally helpful, does make you unhealthy and, and overweight. But it, it also eats into your proper prime food budget. Obviously, there's a lot that people can do to make more sensible decisions about how to eat. But the thing you're missing out of the equation, Mike, is the energy bills. People are spending so much more on energy. And the lower income your household is, the more energy and staple food prices have hit you. And that, that's a reality. And I, I know what you're saying. If you criticise these things, then you're deemed to be some heartless... 
What do you mean you're not well, allowed to? If you're working in one station, you don't get to go to work in the other station. And that's a oh. practice that they have carried on for years and years and years. In the same way that your working day begins when you walk out your front door, as opposed to when you actually get to work. So the hours that you work in the job are less than they would otherwise be. All of these practices that have never been spoken about are still not spoken about. And those are the things that the RMT is trying to protect. But we don't get to be, to be hearing about those. I think... I think one big problem with the RMT, though, that no one is talking about is I think I think they're trying to grab as much money as they can now because automation is on the way. And in a way, this links into what we're saying about benefits and food banks. You see, our whole benefit system probably needs a radical overhaul. The fact is, if somebody's out of work, they should be able to get a job seekers allowance really quickly. Mm. That's when the safety net should be there to catch people. What we have, though, is people on long term benefits. I don't know if you saw, but there was a city and guild study saying off the top of my head, it was two fifths of young people plan to never work. Yeah. I mean, what has gone wrong with mm. a country when such a huge percentage of young people never plan to get a job? Right. You know, recent recent studies have predicted that by 2050, um, half the workforce won't have jobs because of artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, we haven't really worked out where we're going as a society with these really, really big issues. Um, the, those practices you describe by, by the RMT are completely archaic mm. and they make no sense at all when the fact is that so many jobs are going to be replaced by automation in yeah. a short space of time. Although we've been hearing about this automation is going to replace humans for quite a few decades now. I mean, I remember Tomorrow's World that I used to watch in the 70s and nothing was going to be done by humans by the time we reached about 1995. And that's never happened. We'd all be flying around with jetpacks and all the rest of it. You know, there's an awful lot of futurists that talk about what will be and it never actually comes to pass because you can't replace <laughs> human ingenuity and you can't really replace in many ways human you know choice and, and and all sorts of you know challenges that humans can take on that computers cannot and i just think you know the point about all of this is that you know our life as we know it is better than it's ever been our, our you know our life expectancy is longer than it's ever been you know people are more spoiled than they've ever been i mean when i was growing up you couldn't even have the option not to work really because you knew that if you didn't work you would literally just have a life of misery. Now people have taken the decision that they can make that uh, choice and say, actually, I don't think I ever want to work because my life could be okay. Yeah, but do you think we're swimming against the tide here, Mike? Because so many people like the idea of universal basic income. They like the idea of people, pay, people being paid a stipend not to work. This is a popular idea and it's being trialled in lots of places Well, it's, around yeah, the world. it's not really. It's only a popular idea with the sort of pointy-headed people who think that it's a great plan. But actually, everywhere they've tried it properly, it's never really worked because it, you can't possibly make it work because you have to have an economy which is built on people generating income, paying tax on that income, and then feeding those who can't work because they actually can't work, not because they choose not to. Also, it's just miserable. People need something to do. You know, we need to expend our energy. We mm. need ambition. We need aspiration. And even if your job isn't the most meaningful job in the world, it still gives you meaning. Yeah, it course. still gives you a reason to get up, to do something, to make you feel proud of yourself. I feel so disheartened by the young people who actually think they could live on benefits mm. rather than work. You know, at least tomorrow's world, when we were kids, made the future look sparkly and exciting. Um, and now when a lot of advances are talked about, it creates a picture of a very depressing, grey, 
anti-human world mm. where people sit around on their sofas, don't yeah, go out, exactly. don't, don't, don't achieve anything. Playing with their phones and going, oh, I got a big score on whatever it was the latest game is. Anyway, we're out of time, Laura, I'm afraid. Hopefully we'll see you next week uh, when the train strike may not be on, or it may well be, we don't know. Uh, they've told us that the trains might be back to normal on the 9th of January, uh, which would be about a week from now, wouldn't it? This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get some news headlines. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. We're going to be speaking to Professor Carol Sikora coming up in a little while, but let's go to the phones and talk to Hannah, uh, who's in East Sussex. Hello, Hannah. Hello, Michael. How are you doing? It's nice, it's nice to talk to you. Very nice to I talk to you, you as well. I watch your, pro your program every morning, but what I wanted to say was I was taken into hospital on New Year's Eve. Yes. And the ambulance was here like a flash. Oh, good. And they were so good. Yes. Got to the A&E down. I, I knew I had to wait but the nurses, they couldn't do any more than what they were doing. Right. But these three came in. Oh, they weren't having They wanted to be seen right away. Yeah. He went over and he was abusive to the nurses. Mm. And I said to myself, if he doesn't stop, I would go over and I'd give him my bag right in the face. Good for you. And he came back over and security came in and I, I said to them, why don't you three sit down? I said, and shut up. You come in here. I said, wanting to be seen, jumping the queue. Sit down. I said, and shut up. Good for you. We need more and people like said, you, Hannah. Said, he said to me, then, shut your mouth. I said, one second. Don't tell me. I said, shut your mouth. To the people in this country like myself, I said, has work paid into the health service. And you come in here. I said, and want to be seen. You probably haven't put a penny in the health service. Mm. Yes. And... And what happened after that? Did they get seen after or did... The, the, the security spoke to him and he, he put... I said, don't put them out, officer. I said, kick them out. Mm. Kick them out, I said, because if this country, I said, is not going to stand up and do something about these scroungers coming into the country, we're paying... Ta I'm 84. I'm paying income tax on my pensions for the likes of that scum coming into the country uh -huh. and I'm sick and tired of it. Yes. And what so what was wrong with them? What did they need doing? Oh they, there was the one that she was she, she was supposed not be one minute she was laughing and joking, the next minute she was going, Oh, oh, mm. by the way, sick. I right. don't know what was wrong with it. But he was put out and he was told not to come back. No nurses should have put up with the abuse no. from them people. Well, nobody should be abused inside of an A&E. That's absolutely not not happening. It's not a good thing. Hannah, thanks for your call. Um, you know, unfortunately, an awful lot of A&Es have become war zones for all sorts of reasons. And, and, and I don't blame nurses and doctors for saying that it's a bad situation. And I don't blame them for saying they haven't got enough people to look after the numbers of people coming into A&E. But that's another story. Let's talk now, though, to Professor Carol Sikora, Medical Director of Rutherford Cancer Centres. Because the story we've got here this morning uh, is cancer crisis gets even deeper. 18,000 patients face a record-breaking wait for treatment now uh, because of the fact that there's just too many backlogs to deal with. Professor Carroll, a very good uh, morning to you. Well, welcome and a Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Mike. Yes, it's a disaster situation. Mm. I mean, everywhere you touch the NHS, there's a disaster. We just heard about A&E. Cancer is equally bad, um, partly due to COVID, but it's, it was there before COVID, mm. bumbling along, the lack of capacity. And 
the lack of solutions. Uh, and all you get is PR comments from NHS England saying we are working at pace to solve the problem. OK, tell us what you're doing yeah. to solve yeah, because, you. because surely if they are working at pace, then the problem won't be getting worse. Because I'm looking at a, um, a, a, a table here in which it says in October 2019, the number of patients waiting more than 104 days from urgent referral to receiving treatment was somewhere like around about eight and a half, nine thousand. It's now well up to 17, 18,000. So it's doubled. And, you know, 104 days is three months. Three months makes a difference between yeah. life and death if you have certain types of cancer. We won't be able to identify which patients have suffered because of delays, but we know statistically we're going to see a surge of deaths from cancer in the next two to three years because of delays yeah. in getting started on treatment. So right. it really is a scandal. And it's a scandal no one's actually tackling the problem. There's only one way to do it, Mike, in the short term. In the short term is to get people work at weekends, to open cancer centres, incorporate the private sector in there, get things moving, just as we did with COVID vaccination. Mm. We can do it. Yes. It's just a matter of having the will to do it. Well, I remember the last time you and I spoke last year, there was a, a situation where a couple of cancer centres were lying basically, you know, unused because they were in the private sector, but they could have been used by the NHS if the NHS simply had the will to do so. Absolutely. I mean, the, rather the four cancer centres beautifully equipped, lying empty at the moment. Mm. Now, let's get them working. Let's get them working at weekends as well as during the week. Let's get all hospitals open, the cancer services. I mean, it's radiotherapy and chemotherapy. We should be able to start everybody within a week yeah. rather than, as we've heard, 104 days, which is ridiculous. Uh, what is the resistance to this, Carol, do you think? Is it that people don't want to work weekends? Have they not got enough people? There aren't enough people, that's really the truth. But long term, we've got to have a workforce strategy, but that's not going to solve the current generation of cancer patients mm. that are waiting. We've got to use what we've got and actually optimise the gain we get. Open the buildings that are empty, make sure we get the private sector, there are, there are about 20 private cancer centres mm. that work at about half capacity. We can put them through full capacity and let's get things moving. And imaginative use of staff, that's the other problem. Mm. You know, radiographers, the technicians that treat radiotherapy patients are highly skilled. They could do a lot more than they're doing if we allowed them to do that cut out the bureaucracy and let's move forward. Give local control to the managers to really shift. Tell them, this is your problem. You have to solve it. And they will be able to solve it. Uh, instead, we just uh, have statements coming out from the, 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 the above telling everything is going to be OK. Well, it's not for those patients waiting more than 104 days. Well, it really isn't. And also, what about the move that was made, I mean, maybe two years ago, I think you and I have talked about this for a long time, uh, where people were getting their first referral quicker, but the holdup was with the second referral. That seems to be where the problem is, doesn't it? It is. I mean, there are two metrics the NHS uses. One is the uh, two-week wait referral. For a GP that thinks you've got cancer can refer you and you have to be seen within two weeks. But being seen doesn't mean you get treated. So the second metric is from diagnosis of cancer to treatment, and it's meant to be 62 days, which is pretty generous. Mm. So if you were an American, you'd sue if you had to wait two months to get cancer treatment, knowing you've got cancer. Yes. So, uh, even that generous target now is only met in about 
60% of, of the time, and that's getting worse all the time. And you know, blaming COVID's great, you can do that whilst COVID was a problem. It isn't a problem now. We're back to normal capacity. Sure, there's a backlog, but we've got to clear the backlog. Backlog means people will die. And you know, just as in A&E, the, 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 the emergency consultants are calling out for more resources and so on, it's not just a matter of resources. It's more imaginative ways of working. Yes. And we can't see this government taking it seriously at the moment. Well, I mean, nothing seems to be being done really about anything. And I mean, my, my contention, and it might be a simplistic one, but is that basically nobody's going to work. And we have a problem in the civil service, which is very clear, where more and more people are working from home. We have a problem in the NHS where an awful lot of people are working from home as well. And we still have the problem where an awful lot of people are off sick in the public sector. And as you say, the weekends, I mean, I walk past, as, as I bore people to death every day, I walk past Guy's Hospital every day, I walk past Guy's Cancer Centre on bank holidays and uh, on weekends. It's like there's nothing going on. No, that's been the tradition. Sure, we've sort of opened up MR scanners and CT scanners at weekends, but it's, it's pretty much a skeleton service. Uh, we need to get to much more full activity. Mm. It's all about taking a crisis seriously and actually saying, look, from Monday, we've got to do some. Monday next week, we yeah. start doing something about it and really try and push through. Sure, it'll take a bit of money, but not a huge amount mm. compared with what we spent on the centres, on the equipment in the NHS and the private sector. We can get everybody working together to clear this backlog. Yeah. But by summer, it'll be over. We'll be back to baseline then we can kick in with a workforce strategy you know in the short term you can recruit people from abroad but you're depleting the countries they come from mm. especially poorer countries or you can train your own and that's got to be the yeah. key train the people we need for five years down the road it'll take that length of time at least absolutely right and meanwhile we hear claims from uh, various organizations like the bma uh, and the royal college of emergency medicine where they're saying something like 300 to 500 deaths a week are the result of various delays in the NHS and problems with urgent care. Um, the, the NHS is, is disputing those figures, but there's no question in my mind that something needs to be done. But is it really government that makes the difference or is it actually the people running the NHS who could get it done? It's a combination. The politicians are sort of in charge of the strategy. The managers have to fill in like Peter and the dike putting the finger yeah. to hold the waters back that's what they're doing at the moment uh, but no one's taking a longer term view and we've got to do that short term view just get the places open get them working clear the crisis mm. long-term view uh look at the workforce how we can get and how to make the jobs attractive nursing there's no nurses because nursing jobs are not attractive no flexible working no time for for family and so on and obviously the pay is not great so i think it's a combination of everything not just pay but to be feel that you're appreciated by society yeah. and we need well, to do that now i mean yeah i know that's probably what some nurses would say but an awful lot of the nurses who uh, have not voted to strike would would presumably say actually they're quite happy with their lot because they haven't voted to strike and there's many of them and they're not going on strike and also those that have have not caused patients to suffer i mean mm. there's no doubt they've acted really responsibly i was surprised i thought they'd be much more aggressive paramedics the same they acted reasonably responsibly yes and I think that's the problem uh, in healthcare. If you go on strike, to, for a strike to be effective, you've got to harm somebody. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. 
And whilst the train drivers strike, well, it's a nuisance. I'm sitting at home today when I should be in London and trying to do things on the phone. It's a real nuisance. No one's going to die from it. Mm. But with healthcare, people will die. And that's the but problem. But there are people who would be like, likely dying because they can't get a train to go to the hospital to get the treatment that they want. So, I mean, you know, that is also pretty despicable in my view. There are secondary effects of all strikes. Yeah. And see, we've got to settle down as a society and get moving forward. And yeah. we, we're not, it's not comfortable. And the, when I hear the politicians talk very smooth because they're coached how to say things, but there's no doubt they don't have a solution. They don't have a clue. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are, of course, the first show back after the New Year celebrations. It is a, uh, it is January the 3rd, I think, isn't it? Uh, we're almost back to normal, but there's an awful lot of people who are not quite back to normal because Parliament has not restarted. Uh, we have got an awful lot of people who haven't managed to make it into work today simply because it's impossible to do so. The railways are still on strike. There's still a massive logjam going on inside of the NHS. Not an awful lot has changed, but we will be bringing you... Uh, uh, the views of Tobias Elwood MP, Chair of the Defence Select Committee. Um, he was tweeting out just towards the end of last uh, last month that it was this time last year uh, that he was predicting that there would be an invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, it did turn out to be true. He's now saying that he believes there will be, in 2023, uh, some activity of a similar nature uh, in Taiwan. And China uh, is a country now that we must keep our eyes on. We'll talk to him about that. We're also going to hear from Rishi Sunak, because you might have missed it over the course of the weekend, uh, but the Prime Minister did in fact put out a public statement he's often accused of not being very public he's often accused of not really being out there enough for people to work out what exactly he's up to and what exactly he's planning to do and what it is that he thinks he should do well let's have a look at this and this is his greeting to all of us here for new year hi everyone i hope you had a happy christmas before we enter the new year i want to take a moment to reflect 2022 was tough just as we recovered from an unprecedented global pandemic, Russia launched a barbaric and illegal invasion across Ukraine. This has had a profound economic impact around the world, which the UK is not immune to. Since then, this government has taken decisive action to back our NHS with record resources to tackle the backlogs, more funding, more doctors and more nurses. We're also tackling illegal migration and stopping criminals from abusing our asylum system. I'm not going to pretend that all our problems will go away in the new year. But 2023 will give us an opportunity to showcase the very best of Britain on the world stage. The very best of Britain on the world stage. Well, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? Let's find out from Tobias Elwood if he's suitably inspired uh, by such a message. Tobias, um, Happy New Year to you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, and, and to you. I mean, I have to admit, Rishi Sunak is not the most inspiring of people. I know he's trying to be sort of helpful. And he was basically his message was one of hope to people that it's all going to be very hard. But, you know, let's hope for the best. It's not the most inspiring of, uh, of speeches that I've, that I've seen. But I mean, what have we got to look forward to in 2023? Well, it's a reality check. It's making it very clear that 2023 is going to be uh, very difficult indeed. I mean, I'm not going to gloss over it. 2022 is very, very hard, um, not least domestically, politically, with our party, with everything that went on, but also internationally. I think it's quite right that the Prime Minister uh, is uh, clear to the country 
that uh, absolutely we've got a government that's going to lean into this. We're finally showing fiscal responsibility, but these international headwinds are going to be very, very difficult indeed. The one thing Britain has done last year, perhaps head and shoulders above any European country, is to lean in and help Ukraine. And we need to go further than that. You touched on the fact that I predicted an invasion a year ago, but I would like to see this year, the year when we actually help Ukraine further. Let's open that port up in Odessa. Let's get the grain out, as I think you and I have discussed in the past. That will change the cost of living crisis here because it'll affect the price of grain. It'll also impact on oil and gas prices as well. So there's more that we could do domestically by helping internationally. But you also touch on uh, China and Taiwan. I absolutely do predict this is the next huge concern. China's watching what's going on in Ukraine very, very carefully. They're seeing how the West is reacting or not reacting, knowing that it has its eyes on the island of Taiwan. And we all thought, well, Ukraine, I don't even know where that is on the map. I remember playing it in the risk game. Is it really, really important? We now know it's important because it was basically the breadbasket, is the breadbasket for Europe and beyond. Well, mm. Taiwan, they make all the microchips that'll be in your phone, in my phone, in phones across the world, in computers as well. Now, as soon as uh, China uses force to take that island, it will have a massive impact on all economies. There'll be sanctions imposed on China. China will then uh, retaliate uh, with its own sanctions back as well. And I fear, worst case, is that the world splinters into two spheres of ideologically challenged um, arenas. And then other countries stuck in the middle will be forced to choose sides. So what's going on in Ukraine, I'm afraid, dwarfs what will happen mm. uh, in what's in the South China Sea. Yeah, and if you are China watching the world sort of reacting to what Russia has done, you might be encouraged in some ways because Russia doesn't appear to have been damaged terribly badly by the sanctions, not least because they've still got deals going on in the Middle East with the UAE, uh, not least because they're selling their gas to China as well. So uh, it's almost as though China could say, well, you know, what exactly are the Americans going to do? What exactly is the EU going to do? What is Britain going to do? Probably not very much to hurt us. Well, it goes back to Rishi Sunak. If there's one thing I think Britain can do, as we've shown in our history in the past, as we step out, we step forward when other nations perhaps hesitate. And that's what we need to do in Ukraine. We need to conclude this war. Russia is actually losing on the battlefield, but he's taking, Putin is taking this war much further afield mm. against the West. He's now framing this as a battle against the West. And absolutely right, as you imply, if we don't stand up to Russia here, China will take note and then it will take action further afield. China's best friend in the world now is Russia. Again, you, you touched on this, oil and gas that Russia can't sell anymore to, uh, to Europe, it's now sending eastwards mm. to China. So there's a reciprocal relationship that's developing there. Yeah, and obviously that there's not an awful lot, I dare say, that, that certainly Rishi Sunak can do about that. Let's talk a little bit about him, though, because um, you've got a piece out today saying that uh, the next general election may still be up for grabs, that there's some uh, evidence on the ground that the Tory party isn't actually finished. A lot of people think it is. I'm not one of them, by the way. Um, I don't think it's all uh, over and done with at all. I think it's very much up for grabs. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And politics is about showing confidence, showing unity as well, and showing determination that you actually can craft the right policies. You know, I challenge anyone to tell me what Labour actually stands for. And 18 months ago, they were behind in the polls. The only reason why they're ahead now is because people have lost faith 
in the Conservative Party because of the mess which we've got to put our hands up to that took place this summer. But under Rishi Sunak, uh, we're now showing a, a showing a fresh sense of purpose. And he's bringing a sense of calm back to politics as well and wanting to address those, address those very difficult domestic and international challenges that we've just been uh, talking about. So I do encourage all members of the party, including you know fellow parliamentarians, focus on supporting the prime minister because that is the best way that we can win the general election. But I mean, I think he needs to do a number of things, does he not? Certainly as far as a lot of the core voters are concerned. You know, he needs to sort out the migrant crisis. He says he's going to, but it looks as though that's not going to be immediately possible. And it may well be that we have another year of uh, an awful lot of thousands of people coming illegally to the country before it's sorted out. He needs to sort out the cost of living crisis. Uh, as you say, there are, there are many ways of possibly doing that. He can't continue, I presume, to subsidise people's energy bills for the rest of time. You know, that's going to have to be addressed. So there's a lot to do. There is indeed. You need a robust foreign policy. Uh, we can actually come out with international policy. We have convening power. We have the ability to put forward a programme such as Greater Support for Ukraine and rally other nations to then join us. We need to be doing more of that. This is the sort of Cold War statecraft that we work well with the United States. And there's a gap in the market there for international leadership. You're right, the small boats issue is hugely important to resolve. He's, there's a new operational command. It's gonna be uh, led by the border force, bringing in the national crime agencies as well. We've got a deal to fast track Albanians. Don't forget that a third of those coming across uh, are from that country. So that's good to see that being sorted out as well. There's better coordination with the French Finally, so they're actually you know, working with us to be able to prevent the boats from leaving in the first place. But I would go further. I mean, why don't we introduce ID cards like much of Europe or the United States, which means that nobody can come here, wander around the black market and earn a living and disappear into our society. So there's other things like that that we could be looking at as well. Let's close down the criminal gangs. Let's use our agencies to get inside those criminal gangs and close them down for good, because they're the ones that continue to benefit from this. So a lot of initiatives that we could be doing in 2023. Yeah, but surely the criminal gangs are operating all over Europe, aren't they? So, I mean, the, if, if they're having identity cards given to them, they're presumably faking them. It doesn't seem to make any difference because from what we understand, some of these criminal gangs that are running drugs and people from Albania across Europe and into Britain, you know, basically not being stopped anywhere. No, the ID cards, I mean, is, is simply Britain as a society now. We used to actually carry some form of ID anyway, but mm. it shouldn't be, you shouldn't be able to do any form of work, any basic labour whatsoever, without showing an employer the fact that you are legitimate. And when we close down that black market, it's much, much easier than to actually then control those people who are illegitimate and indeed here for the wrong reasons. But you're right to touch on it. The fact is we're not doing enough to actually chase those criminal gangs. And then there's a third development on this as well, which is actually us helping the very places where these people are running away from. I mean, look what happened. There are people coming still from Afghanistan, a country that we absented ourselves from. We handed it back to the very insurgents we went into defeat. Libya, Somalia, Iraq, Syria. These are places that you know the, the West, not just Britain, has wandered into, tried to help to some way, got either bored or uh, lost patience in, in, in any resolve to stay there. And then we wonder why those people then take the biggest decision of their lives, turn their backs on their own country and seek a new life elsewhere. So more work could be done to make, you know, fix the problems at source 
that will you know, mean that they don't want to leave their country in the first place. OK. Chris in Newbury has got a question. He says, Mike, please ask Tobias Elwood why we, the British people, should believe the Tories are protecting the borders of Ukraine when they cannot protect our own. Why should we believe they are smart on China when it was Tories spending £400 billion being conned by China over lockdown? Why should we believe they are smart on energy policy when they gave away energy security and applauded themselves for doing it to gain support from green protesters? Why should we believe anything Rishi Sunak says? It's a bit of a hard well, question. There's a, lot of why, there's a lot of whys there, but the first <laughs> question is, well, where would you go if you didn't support the Conservative Party? That's a very, very serious question. This isn't about protecting Ukraine's borders. This is about standing up to one state invading another and the consequences of us doing nothing. Because Russia won't stop there, it will then move further. It's expansionist. That's what the, the Russia does. That's what the motherland's ethos has been for the last 300 years years. It is Britain that steps forward when other nations hesitate, as I've said, suggested in the past. And we need to do that uh, again. OK, Tobias, thanks very much indeed for talking to us. Tobias Elwood MP, chair of the Defence Select Committee, uh, urging uh, that Britain does more for Ukraine, does more as well to stop the migrant crisis. The question really is, surely, uh, whether anybody out there is going to buy it, whether anybody out there is going to believe it, and whether anybody out there will ever vote Tory again. That is the question, is it not? 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk about the economy coming up. We're going to talk more about energy as well, because uh, if you have been in receipt of money from the government to pay your energy bill, do you really think that's going to go on forever? Because surely it can't, can it? This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Gianno Infantino now, of course, who's the man that runs the World Cup, the head of the World Cup, who's just had his... Uh, Great success in Qatar, I suppose you could call it. Um, he's now saying that every country in the world um, who subscribe presumably to FIFA and to the world of football should name a stadium after Pele. Um, I'm not sure Infantino is the greatest judge of character when it comes to these things. But let's talk now to Jim White, uh, sports writer, of course, at The Telegraph uh, to find out precisely what is going on in the world of football. Jim, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Mike. I think quite a few people, myself included, thought Pelé was, was actually um, sort of on the mend slightly, just a few, maybe a few days before his death was announced. Um, but now that he has died, I mean, he, it's hard to imagine a, a bigger superstar in the world of football. I mean, unfortunately, I'm old enough to remember watching him play and he was incredible, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was. He, he, the thing about him, Mike, was he, he brought joy to football. You know, he played with a smile and he made you smile when you watched Yes. Him. He was brilliant at everything in the game. But he was also a real gentleman, mm. you know, the, the, those pictures that we saw at his death of him uh, just consoling uh, Bobby Moore after uh, Brazil had beaten England in the 1970 World Cup. That was a footballing gentleman. Mm. And I think that's the way we remember him. And certainly in Brazil, they, they call him the king. And he had that kind of regal presence about him. He did. And we're watching uh, incredible scenes, really, from uh, from the stadium at Santos where his body's lying in state. And I know some people were watching it here this morning slightly, um, I don't know, questionably, because it's an unusual thing, obviously a cultural thing in Brazil, where he's lying in state. You're actually walking past his his dead body, um, which not everybody in this country, I suppose, is used to, an open, uh, an open coffin. But you can see the, 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 the amount of, of reverence there is for the man. Yes, and indeed, those pictures showed the president, uh, President Lula, recently installed uh, in Brazil and wanting, as we've saw at the World Cup with so many politicians, wanting 
to associate himself with this moment. So, yeah. you know, th this is what football is in Brazil and, and around the world. It becomes a way of politicians to get their name out there. And Lula wants to make sure he was seen, he was there. I'm not sure if he queued quite as long as some of the other people to get to the front of the queue, <laughs> um, but, it, but he was there and, 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 you know, wanted to make sure that he was seen paying his respects to the great man. Yes, absolutely right. And I mean, as far as Brazil and football goes, you know, it wasn't a great World Cup for them. Um, and, you know, Argentina, I guess their biggest rivals were the, were the victors. I mean, uh, I imagine the celebrations in Argentina are still going on, aren't they? Yes, I think they are. And I think they're, they're, yes, they're fully here at the moment, the border um, <laughs> is part of it as well. Um, I remember in, in, in 2014, when Argentina got to the final in Brazil, uh, the Brazilians who'd been knocked out in the semi-final by the Germans were almost celebrating as much um, in, in the, the fact that uh, Argentina didn't win um, as they would have done if they had won. Yeah, it, it's a loss for them. And, uh, you know, Pele's successors live in his shadow always. He's the only man who's ever won the yeah. World Cup three times. They haven't won it since 2002. And I think it becomes a bigger burden mm. uh, history for those current players. Yeah, there was an awful lot of uh, stuff being put out, wasn't there, on, uh, uh, on social media of various different moves that Pele had made before anybody else had ever done them. You know, whether it was Cruyff, whether it was, you know, Gerd Muller, whether it was Gaza, whatever it was, Pele had done it before any of them. Um, and he was that incredible player. But um, Infantino is asking for every country uh, in the world to name a stadium after him. Do you think there's a chance that that will happen? Well, I think that is typical of Infantino. It's a, it, it's a kind of pointless statement that... Yeah. that cannot be followed through i mean just look at the great players who have, have have died and had very few of them have had stadiums named after them mm. diego maradona the naples stadium is named after him johan cruyff uh the uh, ajax amsterdam those are two clubs that were closely associated yeah. with great players you can understand it interestingly alfredo di stefano the greatest player uh ever to play in spain um the real madrid second stadium is named after Alfredo Di Stefano. The main stadium is named after Santiago Bernabeu, who is a former chairman, yeah. which I think gives you a better idea. It tells you all you need to know, yeah. Well, I think I'm right in saying that George Best has got an airport named after him in Northern Ireland, hasn't he? Yes, he has. George Best City Airport in, in, in Belfast, but no stadiums. I, I mean, it's just, a, it's just a fancy that every nation in the world is going to name it. And, and if he was the greatest player in the world and he gets every stadium, when the second greatest player uh, in the world died, does he get half the world giving them yes. a stadium? It, it, it's just a fanciful nonsense. I suspect the Santos Stadium, where he is lying in state currently, may well be named in his honour. But that's up to that club. It's not up to Infantino making No, absolutely not. And I mean, now that the dust has settled from Qatar, I mean, uh, Infantino presumably could look back on it and think that it probably went reasonably well. Yes, indeed. Uh, uh, what was brilliant about the Qatar World Cup was the football mm. was superb. And one of the things that Infantino said was, well, there was a reason why the football was superb. None of the players arrived here exhausted after hard domestic yeah. season, which I think implies, suggests that he wants another Winter World Cup. Mm. Where's it likely to be a Winter World Cup? Saudi Arabia. And I think he's already beginning to you know, get that idea into our heads that we're going to have a Winter World Cup in Saudi Arabia 
next time around. No, one after the one. Yes, they're the... talking about, I think, 2030, aren't they? Because, um, funnily enough, when on the day of the opening of the World well, I think it was like quite opening day, was it Saudi Arabia beat uh, Argentina? And there was some suggesting that, did it have something to do with the fact that uh, Lionel Messi was, in fact, already signed up as the mascot for the Saudi Arabian bid. And of course, it turned out not to quite be the case. But but you wouldn't be at all surprised now with anything that FIFA does, would you? Not at all. I mean, it, it, it's it's the, the idea that the kind of corrupt systems uh, have departed with the previous regime of Sepp Blatter uh, is, is a nonsense. Mm. They are still, they have one purpose in, in life, to make as much money as they possibly can mm. at the stage of the World Cup. And of course, it worked for them in Qatar. No more money was thrown at it than ever before. Yeah. That's the reason it was so successful, Mike. It was brilliant because there was so much money behind yeah. it. Oh yeah, and, and I mean, they proved every everybody, and I include myself in it, who said it won't work at that time of the year. It'll be awful. It'll be dreadful. It'll be ghastly. Um, actually, they were right, and we were wrong, I guess. Well, indeed, and 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 it really helps uh, if you want to organise a tournament if you've got bottomless pockets to pay for it, and an army of slave labourers to build it. Yes. I mean, these things really help. Yes. We might as well we might as well call it as it is, I suppose. Now that we're back, uh, briefly back into the Premier League, um, everybody's forgotten about Gareth Southgate and England's pretty poor performance, I suppose. Uh, but tra- tragically, he's going to stick with the, with the job. <laughs> yes, I think he'll be around for a while, Mike. You'll still be complaining about his presence. <laughs> I will. And what about the Premier League right now? Then what are you what are you seeing? Well, it's very interesting the way that Arsenal have shown as that it, it appears that Arsenal's momentum has not been broken at all by hmm. the World Cup. They're no. still steaming away, looking absolutely magnificent, playing really, really good football. Everyone else seems to be stuttering. We hmm. saw Liverpool fail at Brentford. We saw Manchester City drawing at the weekend. Nobody seems to be seizing the initiative and it still belongs to Arsenal. And the more this goes on, it looks more and more like a one-horse race. Yeah, top I know. Piers Morgan will be insufferable. We can only hope that something changes. <laughs> <laughs> Good to see you, Jim. Thanks very much indeed. Jim White, sports writer at The Telegraph. Uh, seeing, uh, as, uh, as I did his reaction there, we all know what will happen if Arsenal win the league. Piers Morgan will never shut up about it. But there we are. Lots more coming up uh, between now uh, and 7 o'clock tonight, of course. As I said, Christo's up. Uh, we'll take more of your calls. Uh, the return of Vanessa Feltz as well. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.